All right. Well, we do have a, a unique group of people here, as we always do. Uh, we have some homeschool moms and some medical professionals. We have a ex-police officer and an ex-felon. Uh, we have Joseph. Who's the ex-felon? All different kinds of people <laughs> from all different kinds of backgrounds, right? <laughs> well, that's good to hear. What's that? Yeah, that's right. A goat owner of all all things. Yeah, as random as you get. So, with all of our weird, diverse backgrounds, what is it that brings us together? What is it that unifies such a, a unique group of people as ourselves? Oh, it's not there was pizza tonight. Oh, well, that's that's not for you. Is that the best answer we got? We thought there was pizza tonight? I said Christ, yeah. okay? <laughs> Joanna gave the right answer. All right. <laughs> Joanna's right answer is just outshined by Jeremy's awful answer. That was mine. All right, so... <laughs> so we are all here united in Christ, right? Our, our love for Christ, our desire to, to know Him, to learn about Him, to uh, shine for Him, to reflect Him. Is that something that we're only able to say now that the kids have left? Is that something we're only able to say now that we don't have the the nursery in here, any of the infants in here? Oh, she's right there. All right. So is she united with us in Christ? No, she's not saved. No, that's a little bit awkward, right? Yeah. So we'd be just fine without her. We don't need to bring our, our young kids who don't know Christ. And no, still... they need to be here so they know Christ. Okay. They need to be here so they know Christ. It is kind of a an interesting kind of aspect to the church, um, to our congregation, because our congregation wouldn't be the same without our, our young kids, without the infants, those who don't yet know Christ, those that we hope will one day know Christ. Um, wouldn't be the same without them, and yet they aren't a part of the actual church, right? They aren't in Christ. They aren't coming here because they're united to one another in Christ. As we have come here because we have that same common unifying factor of Jesus being our Lord, of us submitting to him. And yet they're still a part of our congregation. And um, again, it's a little bit different, a little bit unique. And we're going to talk tonight a little bit about uh, Presbyterians and how Presbyterians have kind of made a, a they, they've tried to take that awkwardness away by creating an avenue to include their infants and their children in their church body and call them even um, a part of the church even though they don't yet know Christ. So I didn't think I'd be using this, but I'll use it momentarily. Yes. Could you explain that handout? There are a few people that I gave that handout to tonight, the big seven-pager. Yes. They hadn't had it before. Yeah, that's <laughs> handout. I'm afraid I may have confused them thinking you were going to talk about it tonight. Okay. Yeah, that handout is something we went over the last two weeks. And that just gives some brief definitions of uh, covenant theology and different aspects of covenant theology that we've spent the last couple weeks going over, and then a response from our perspective, from a dispensational perspective. So we might uh, reference that here in a little bit, but we're not really going to be looking at that too much tonight. So uh, that's just a reference you guys can hold on to for future um, <laughs> reference. Did you say something? I said we forgot it, so I started laughing. Oh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, so we're going to be talking about pedo baptism tonight. Um, another way to say that that a lot of people would prefer is covenant baptism. Um, and that just is referring to infant baptism, to baptizing infants. And obviously, that's not something that we do here. Um, we don't have any plans to do that here anytime soon. 
uh, or far off for that matter. Um, but we are going to talk about why other people do that and why they consider it to be uh, a valid form of baptism and why we can still call them brothers and sisters in Christ, even though they take a, a radically different approach to baptism and uh, who they baptize. And so I want to start off by reading a, a statement here from uh, Jason Holopoulos um, talking about the, the reason that he believes in paedo-baptism. He says that we believe in one book that tells one overarching story of promise about one Savior coming to reconcile one people to the one true God. Is that a good statement or a bad statement? Any comments on that statement? Let me read it for you one more time. We believe in one book that tells one overarching story of promise about one Savior coming to reconcile one people to the one true God. Okay, good. Got your thinking cap on. Have to define the one people. A lot of it sounds really good, right? Because we do believe in one book, right? One book that's comprised of 66 different books, but one book tells one overarching story of promise about one Savior. That could use a little bit of definition, too. Coming to reconcile one people to the one true God. Uh, the key, as Mike pointed out, is the one people. And so Jason here, he's writing from a, a covenant perspective. And we've talked about the covenants for a while now, right? We talked about the biblical covenants first, and then most recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the covenants of covenant theology. Remind me the, the three primary covenants that we focused on that we can find in the Bible. Abrahamic, yeah. Davidic. Yeah, we touched on the Mosaic, right? The Old Covenant, which we contrasted with. You said the three ones we can find in the Bible, but that's not what you meant to say, right? Because we find more than three in the Bible. Yeah, the three that we focused on that we could find in the Bible. Yeah, and then the New Covenant. Good. So, yeah, I asked for three and I got four. I wasn't thinking about the, the Mosaic or the Old Covenant, but we did compare that with the New Covenant for a while. So good, those are the ones that we can find uh, referenced in Scripture explicitly, right? It talks about the Abrahamic Covenant, Davidic, Mosaic, and New Covenant. And then, most recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked, and talked about uh, the three covenants of covenant theology. And this is the time when you might want to reference that handout that Jeremy just gave you, um, because... That will give us those covenants. What are those covenants that we've talked about the last couple of weeks? Covenant of works. Covenant of works, good. Redemption. And what was the um, the last one? Covenant of grace. Somebody uh, take a stab at defining the covenant of redemption as defined by covenant theology. Who is that covenant in between? Who does it include? All right, so, yep, God the Father, God the Son, maybe the Spirit, um, coming together, this is before creation, and deciding who was going to play what role and how they were going to accomplish this task of redemption. And then we, um, we reference the covenant of works. Where, according to covenant theology, does the covenant of works take place in your Bible? Okay, so yeah, we know that you can't find it in the Bible, right? right? But they'll say that it took place in the garden. So that only goes for the first three chapters of Genesis, again, according to their perspective. And then the covenant of grace really is what takes place throughout the majority of the Bible, um, once again, from their perspective. We don't hold to any of those covenants. We don't find uh, scriptural evidence for those covenants. But the covenant of grace is really what um, takes place throughout the bulk of biblical history. And uh, that's what they have in view. That's what Jason has in view when he's talking about this one overarching story of promise. He's referencing the covenant of grace. And we've talked before about 
the, the one people of God from their perspective. They don't see a, a distinction between Israel and the church. They'll say that Israel is the church of the Old Testament and that the church is the Israel of the New Testament. But our perspective varies, right? We are dispensational, so we see a distinction between the Old Testament Israel and the church of the New Testament. So uh, what they are saying is that there is one overarching covenant, the covenant of grace, that is over all peoples for all times. And it's out of this understanding of this one overarching covenant of grace that we are all one people that we really get this doctrine of pedo-baptism or infant baptism. Uh, it all flows out of that overarching covenant of grace. And so what they'll do is they'll look back into the Old Testament and they'll say that we see a sign for the covenant in the Old Testament, the, the old covenant that we looked at. What is the sign that God gave for the old covenant that he made with, not the old covenant, with uh, the Abrahamic covenant? What is the sign that he gave for the Abrahamic covenant that he made with Abraham? Circumcision, good. And so they'll look at that and they'll say, well, we have a sign in the old, old Testament with Abraham in circumcision. And so we must have a corresponding sign in the New Testament. And they'll say that that must be baptism. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. Uh, one important fact to note um, from both our perspective and covenant theology, nobody believes that um, baptism saves. So it could be easy to have that misconception about those who are covenantal that they think that baptism has some sort of saving work, saving effect, because there are some people who believe that, uh, but Covenantalism does not believe that um, baptism has any salvific uh, efficacy. Uh, this quote that I have here from uh, Andrew Sandlin, he says, I didn't raise my children with the presumption that they were regenerate. He had baptized his children. He didn't raise them presuming that they were regenerate. He says he raised them with the presumption that they would become regenerate. So this is the a lot of the mentality behind why they baptize their children. It's kind of a, a hopeful, wishful thinking that they would become regenerate later on. Um, let's actually open up our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. And then I want you guys to give me a a summary of what it is that Paul is saying in these first eight verses. So Romans 4, starting in verse 1. It says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So, just looking at those first eight verses, how would we summarize that, that passage? What is it that, that Paul's really getting at here? You're justified apart from works. All right, good. Yeah, you're justified by faith apart from works, right? That's kind of the main thrust of what he's getting at. That um, Abraham couldn't have been justified by faith. Or by works. He must have been justified by faith. All right, now looking at verses 9 and 10, Paul goes on, he says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then he answers his own question. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So he's just... Uh, 
kind of hammering this down, that he was credited with this faith prior to his circumcision, right? Um, once again, thinking back to our study through the Abrahamic covenant, where is it in Scripture that we find that covenant? Where do we find the covenant that God made with Abraham? Genesis 12. All right, good. Genesis 12 is where he first lays it out. Um, and then it's uh, kind of reiterated in Genesis 15 with the, the blazing oven and where God actually goes between the, the animals, right? The animals that are cut in two. And then um, I want to pick up again in Genesis 17. We get some more covenant language here in Genesis 17. And I'm going to read 7 through 14 of Genesis 17. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give you and I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God said further to Abraham. Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in your house or who is brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So remember, this took place after chapter 12, right? And after the uh, chapter 15, where God actually went through the animals, this took place afterwards, that God is now talking once again about the reiteration of this covenant um, in line with the circumcision. All right, well, back in Romans 4, um, I'm going to read a couple more verses in that passage. So picking back up in verse 11, it says... Um, I'll go back a little bit. So he asked in verse 10, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. That's what we just uh, read back in 17, Genesis 17. And then verse 11 says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So he was the, he had this promise bestowed on him prior to his circumcision, and so he's the father of the, the uncircumcised and the circumcised as well. And um, we see in the beginning of verse 11, a phrase that you'll hear quite a bit amongst covenant theologians, that he received the sign of circumcision and a seal of the righteousness of faith. And so they'll talk about uh, both circumcision and baptism as a sign and a seal. And so we do see that uh, circumcision isn't what saved Abraham. Paul's really hammering that point down. He's saying he's not saved by works, he's saved by faith, not saved by circumcision. In fact, he was saved before he was even circumcised. Right. However, it did serve as a sign and a seal of his salvation by faith. Now, that phrase, again, sign and seal, um, really is not found many other places other than here. But um, covenant theologians, I'll take that and they will apply it to a, a bunch of the different covenants and say, well, this is a sign and this is a seal. And so let me just read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is from 
uh, chapter 28 on baptism. This is a confession that Presbyterians hold to. It says that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. So we just talked about sign and seal, that language, and then covenant of grace. Again, that's not something we find in the Bible, right? That's something within covenant theology, this system that looks over the, the bulk of the Bible. So it's also unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So that's kind of how they summarize baptism. Can you summarize their summary? <laughs> that is quite a lot in there. Um, they're saying, I don't know if I can summarize their summary. Um, part of the reason they have their confessions is because they don't want their summaries summarized, but um, they are kind of particular about that. They uh, are very choosy with the words that they pick, and um, depending on who you talk to, the um, the confessions are like, right there below scripture. Um, They've been written by a a bunch of really wise men who went to great lengths to pick out the the right words. Um, But, let's see, so he says it's a sign and seal, or the confession says it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And then it speaks of regeneration, of remission of sin, of giving yourself up to God. So you see an aspect of sanctification there. And to walk in newness of life, more sanctification. Um, yes, and just being uh, a new creation in Christ, so to speak. And then uh, they go on after that. In the fourth point of chapter 28 of the same confession, it says, again in reference to baptism, that not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, so again we see both justification, being saved, and sanctification, growing in Christ, being mentioned there. Not only those who profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So um, it's not only for professing believers. That's how we view baptism, right? We are uh, credo-baptists. We think that we have to have a a confession of faith prior to being dunked into the water, right? Um, And they say it's not only for believers, but if a believer, even just one believer, has uh, an infant, that child is to be baptized as well. Um, Any thoughts or questions at this point? So they don't use scripture to support the idea that baptism is required? Um, Yeah, they they do. We'll get there. Uh, I don't think it's substantial. I don't think they can really defend that, that it's required for, for infants. And again, it's not required for salvation. Uh, but I think some of the language gets a little bit sloppy sometimes. Yeah, like the first point you're reading from the Westminster, when you were summarizing it, you said it was talking about salvation and sanctification and stuff. How, how is that connecting to infant baptism? Because they don't say infant baptism leads to salvation, obviously, or equates to salvation. So what's, what are they saying in that point? Um, let me read it for you again, <laughs> because, again, I don't think I can really do a good job summarizing it. But, again, I think it is not as clear as I would like it to be. So it says, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. That's important, the visible church, not the invisible church, right? So the invisible church is those who are truly saved, who are truly born again, the visible church, and people that show up at the building. It says, but also to be unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, 
to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So it's saying on the one hand that it, it does show who's part of the visible church. But for those who do have faith, for those who are part of the invisible church, to him, it's a, a sign and a seal of God's covenant to him. Does that make a little bit more sense? So it, it's looking at two different aspects for those who are part of the visible church and those who are part of the invisible church. Why, why babies? Like, how? That's too much. <laughs> <laughs> No, they're saying the baby is a part of the church. But they're not saying that the baby is saved. So it's kind of an in-between. Well, they're also saying that the baby who's baptized is a member of the new covenant. Yes. He is. Even though he doesn't have his own faith. Yes. Yeah. So there's kind of a, a different level. So there's like being a believer, being saved and then being a part of the visible church, and they would say that just being a part of the visible church is equivalent with being a, a covenant member, a member of the covenant. Andy. So, um, during the Reformation, um, Martin Luther was pretty adamant on the infant baptism. Um, as a matter of fact, went so far as to Anabaptists in cells until they died, basically. Yeah. Um, is that is that sort of the line of ascent, descent, whichever term you prefer? Uh, sort of before that, but the Protestant. Yeah, no, no, I, I know it, it was definitely a Catholic thing. Yeah, and, Martin Luther struggled quite a bit with how to to make all this work together. Because, yeah, he, he brought that with him, this infant baptism out of Catholicism. Uh, and he was reforming all these other aspects of uh, Catholic theology, Roman Catholic theology. Uh, and he really struggled with that. He actually ended up with the, the position of saying that babies have unconscious faith. So, yeah, it's, I don't know how that works. But, um, so... <laughs> Jeremy's favorite kind of faith is unconscious faith. So he, he was kind of trying, again, to figure it out. He was playing both sides of the fence a little bit, uh, realizing that uh, faith is, is vital to being a part of the, the covenant people of God. And yet, um, he was still kind of holding on to this, but what about the babies? What about the infants? And that's where he landed. So uh, going back to circumcision, what we read about, in, in Romans 4, circumcision was, it came after Abraham's faith, right? And that was the sign and the seal of the covenant promise that God had made with Abraham. It was a sign that um, God gave to him, and it was a seal for him to show that, um, that this covenant has been established, that God was going to be faithful, he was going to see this through. And being that we are all, according to covenant theology, we are all one people, um, without distinction, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, uh, we're all under the covenant of grace. They'll take that same concept and they'll uh, put it onto baptism. And after all, the, the infants in Israel, they were circumcised as well, right? On the eighth day. And so that's kind of where the, the whole babies thing comes into play. Um, and for me, when I was... Okay, go ahead. I just want to correct one thing you just said. It wasn't all the infants. Yes, it was a male infant. Yes. Right? Good. Now, not all the infants were, were circumcised and representative of the, the covenant promise. It was the males. Shows a little how, how, like, uh, how not really consistent it all is. Where uh, it's 50% of the children before, but now it's 100% of the children who get the sign. Yeah. Well, they'll say that the, there are distinct differences between the Old Covenant and New Covenant, between the Old Testament and New Testament, and that's just one of the evidences of that fact. Um, and they'll say that it's actually an evidence that uh, we are in a quote-unquote dispensation of greater grace now than under the Old Testament. But I think one of the problems with that is that it kind of undermines the whole concept of 
headship if um, you're to carry that through into the New Testament. But uh, one of the questions that I had with baptism and applying this language of a sign and a seal to baptism is, um, okay, I can maybe see how baptizing an infant might be a, a sign of them being a part of the, the church community. Uh, I definitely don't like the idea of being a part of the, the covenant people of God. I think that's language that should be reserved for those who are in Christ, those who are believers who are redeemed. But I couldn't really understand what does it mean that it is a seal for um, that it's a seal, this infant baptism. And so uh, doing a, a little bit of research on that, um, I have a couple of quotes here. It says, well, I guess this isn't a quote, but baptism is a seal not of our subjective faith, but of God's objective faithfulness. That's kind of the position that they would take. That it's not a, an infant being able to look back at their baptism and say, oh, I had faith and I believed back then. But um, what they are attempting to do in baptizing an infant is to say, God is a faithful God who is a covenant-keeping God, who is a God of promises, and you are a part of this promise of God by um, just being a part of a Christian family. And we would, we would certainly agree that there are blessings that come with being a part of a Christian family. <laughs> However, uh, we would not say that that um, makes somebody a, a member of the covenant. So if, uh, well, yeah, there are benefits for being in a Christian family as opposed to not being in a Christian family, right? All right. <laughs> I hope so too. Yes. Is there a tie between law keeping and baptizing your infant? Like if they, if the law carries over, if the Christians are supposed to obey the law, do they see infant baptism as obedience to the law? I think so. Yeah, and I think all that flows out of again being the the one people under this one covenant of God. So, because the covenant of grace is um, crossing both testaments, and we are all one covenant people of God, then we are subject to the law, and we are um, to symbolize our the, the covenant that God has made to us, either in the Old Testament through circumcision or in the New Testament through baptism. So, yeah, I think those are kind of touching aspects that flow out of this understanding of the covenant of grace. All right, um, so uh, the, the sealing aspect of the baptism isn't only for the, the parent's benefit, uh, but it's also for the child's benefit, that they might be instructed as they grow older, that they might look back on their blessing as a covenant member. So the idea is that they can, um, they can gain some kind of uh, spiritual insight, I guess, uh, realizing the blessing that they have being a part of the church by their parents telling them, well, you were baptized once too. And as I see other babies being baptized, the idea and the hope is that um, they'll realize, okay, well, we're all part of this one big church family in a way that you and I kind of struggle saying, well, our, our kids are, they're part of our church community, but they're not really in Christ. We don't have that same kind of bond with them. Um, they are looking for more unity in being able to look back to their infant baptism and uh, find a kind of faith boost by that. Uh, I have a longer quote here from John Murray. John Murray says, What does it benefit infants to be given this sign when they are so young? Like circumcision before it, baptism calls out to those who receive it. It forever marks them as having belonged to the covenant community reminding them that they have heard the covenant promises and pleading with them all the days of their lives to believe, to have faith in Christ, to look to this God of promise. Baptism is always there bearing witness to the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the ministry of the Spirit. In this sense, infant baptism serves alongside the word to proclaim to the child their need of the Spirit to work the twin graces of repentance and faith within them. Not that the baptism does work those things in them, 
but it's to serve as a reminder that they need repentance and faith worked out within them through the Spirit. Uh, continuing, on, continuing on, it says, through baptism, the child enters the physical church by being identified on earth as part of the covenant community. But only through faith and repentance does that child become a member of the invisible church, thereby joining the rankings of true believers and thereby receiving the blessings that they were signified in their baptism, that were signified in their baptism, now sealed to them by God. Therefore, baptism seals those to whom God grants the gift of faith. So, infant baptism, again under their system, is assigned to all the, the infants who are baptized in the hopes that it will become a seal to those who believe, that they'll be able to look back on that as a sign and say, okay, well, I'm part of this family. I'm, I'm supposed to um, fall under this covenant people of God. I need to kind of live my life in accordance with that. And then after they embrace Christ by faith and repentance, then it becomes to them a seal as well. Does that kind of make sense? I know we don't believe that. We don't hold to that. But... That's, that's where Presbyterians are coming from. Joseph. So, um, if they do end up leaving Christ and accepting their faith, do they want to be baptized again, or do they just kind of rest on their infant? No, they don't want to be baptized again. Even, uh, uh, so we were talking about Martin Luther, Martin Luther, and John Calvin. Uh, they weren't baptized Protestants. They were only baptized Roman Catholics. And... Um, it varies a little bit, but definitely within English, England is, how do I say that? Anglicanism. Anglicanism and um, Lutherans, Lutheranism. Um, they will embrace the, the baptism of a Roman Catholic. So if a baby's baptized an infant as a Roman Catholic, and then they uh, become one of those other faiths that I just tried to say, then that baptism as a, a Roman Catholic, that'll suffice. But if you're baptized as a, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or whatever, then you need to be rebaptized. Because Ephesians 4 says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So there's no need to be baptized again later on. What that would actually do is undermine the original infant baptism if they were to undergo a second baptism. <laughs> okay. Any other thoughts or questions? Well, infant baptism, I know, was practiced widely in, in Europe during all the years of the Dark Ages and everything else because I know one aspect of it was more tolerable told. I mean, they had something like But that kind of undermines the foundational belief that it's not re there's no regenerative work taking yes. place in baptism. Yeah. But yeah, I just heard a Presbyterian recently talking about the different of perspective from a Presbyterian parent and a Baptist parent. He was saying how he was kind of putting putting a little jab, poking a little bit toward that Baptist, saying you put doubt in your kids' hearts from the moment they're born. Are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? And they grow up having to figure out, like, I don't know, am I, am I or am I not? They just have to live with this perpetual faith crisis. Whereas with, uh, from a Presbyterian perspective, you're not saying you're saving them through baptism, but you're giving them an assurance of being a covenant member that they can feel like they can actually grow up in the faith rather than never knowing if they're joining it or not. Uh, but that quote you read from John Murray it shows Presbyterians don't escape that problem because the whole point of baptizing them is to almost like haunt them with this baptism. <laughs> like, hey, we, we baptized you so that way you can always wonder if you do have faith or not. That's kind of uh -huh. what John Murray was saying. And so you can never really escape that problem if you believe they have to have their own faith in their own time. It's always going to be a challenge. Yeah. But, but that's somehow sometimes what Presbyterians will say to kind of support their view. And I think we could say the opposite about them, that doing that practicing infant baptism can give a child a false sense of 
assurance, false sense of security. Um, and so even so, even though they very clearly say that this isn't for salvation, um, despite that, I think that it can often leave the, the wrong impression. And while this isn't really a reason to reject it, I think pragmatically speaking, it's a little bit confusing to um, just some of the language that they use. So here's a couple other quotes that, that I just find confusing. Um, someone said that a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises are for reassurance. Um, again, that's speaking of for the child after they embrace faith, but um, that's a little confusing. And then uh, someone else also said that baptism is a gift from a kind father who loves to lavish good things on his children, which I think can kind of presuppose that we are all his children. Or somebody that's just baptized as an infant has some kind of saving faith, but they say that's not the, the point. I just find it a little bit confusing. All right, well, let's move on to Cato communion. We'll just touch this briefly. Uh, this is giving communion to infants. If you're going to baptize infants, why not give them communion? This is something that the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, uses as a standard practice. Uh, Anglican churches, they are kind of mixed on it. They'll leave it up to their, their local bishop or their local rector. Um, and then some Presbyterians, are, it's kind of mixed too, mixed bag amongst Presbyterians. Um, according to Wikipedia, R.C. Sproul in, uh, endorsed Pado Communion, and Doug Wilson, Rush Dooney, Gary North, there's some advocates of uh, giving communion to infants. And the people who don't hold to Pado Communion, they'll use a, a very similar argument to what we would use, um, pretty much identical. They'll point to 1 Corinthians 11, where uh, we're given instruction on communion, and I'll say that, well, we're told that we're to do this in remembrance of Christ. Whenever we take this, we're to do this in remembrance of him. That's not something that an infant is capable of doing. Um, they're to do this in remembrance of his death and in proclamation of his second coming. Uh, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11 says that it must be done in a worthy manner, um, something that an infant isn't able to, to check themselves and do. Uh, 28 says that they're supposed to, that we rather are supposed to examine ourselves. Um, once again, something that an uh, infant is unable to do. Um, they'll, I, I think that from their perspective, it's more consistent to embrace both, but they say that um, baptism is a, a passive act, that the baptism is being done to them, while communion is an active act. So that's where they're coming from. Any thoughts or questions on pedo communion? <laughs> Some people do, yeah. Yeah, they'll. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll break up the bread and use wine. At least one person that I was listening to make like a little paste type thing, and the priest or bishop or whoever put it on his finger and put it in the baby's mouth, and this will be a sanctified bread and wine. Um, so it's not just a, a remembrance, understanding of communion like we hold. So why do they do communion? Because they're part of the covenant people of God. And um, they're just seeking to be consistent. Just like the Old Testament covenant people of God, they were included in the covenant by the sign and seal of baptism. Uh, the New Testament covenant people of God are to be included by the sign and seal of baptism and communion. All right. Oh, Jim. If you call them a seal, but you say they're not a seal for life. I, I'm not calling it a seal. That's what they're calling it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. I, I find that the most seal, confusing. The seal not seal until they believe. Yeah. yeah, so they will say that it doesn't act as a seal until after belief. And then after that, they're able to look back not really look back, but just, I guess, hear stories from their parents about how they were welcomed into the covenant community by way of infant baptism, and in some cases, infant communion. Melissa? It very clearly says in Romans 4 that circumcision came after faith. Uh -huh. So they're not copying the, the sequential order. 
like it. But, but then the descendants, you know, as we read in 17, on the oh, eighth day, they are going to be circumcised. So yeah. Abraham was there. Yeah, Abraham was the first. So, uh, R.C. Sproul again, he says that circumcision signified a lot more than faith, but by no means less than faith. Which, yeah, caused me to pause for a second and say what? Um, but he says that Abraham first had uh, faith, and then later on he was justified, and then he was given circumcision as a sign of that uh, faith that he had. And then that sign was administered to those who did not yet have faith, those infants who came after him. Yes? I just want to put in a little plug for the Do Theology podcast. Our last episode was an interview with uh, a guy, Dr. Peter Gaiman, who wrote a book called The Baptism Debate, which is a very good book. And we spent about an hour and a half talking about infant baptism and its ties to covenant theology and working through that whole thing. And the, the issue of faith was really interesting in that book, how Augustine explained whose faith it was and how Luther explained whose faith it was and how Zwingli explained whose faith it was because they were all trying to figure out how you connect faith to baptism in a baby. And so like Augustine would say, it's the faith of the parents that's transfused to the baby. Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting history. Yeah, weird stuff. All right, well, now let's look at a response from a credo-baptistic perspective or somebody who holds to believer's baptism as we do. All right, so um, even those who hold to pedo baptism they will firmly admit that there's no verse in Scripture in all the Bible that talks about uh, pedo baptism Not explicitly, at least, but they'll say, well, there are some that talk about it explicit or implicitly, rather. Um, we looked earlier at that verse in Genesis 1717, 17, not in Exodus, and, or 177 rather. And it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. And so they like to take that verse and they'll pair that with Acts 2, 38 and 39. So I'm going to read those verses here. It's kind of harkening back to that. See, Acts two thirty eight says, "This is Peter's sermon." Peter said to them, "Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call to Himself." And so, I think that there's no reason that we should not understand this as Peter talking to those first century Jews and saying this promise is for you that you can have salvation in Christ and not just for you but also for your children for the subsequent generations who come after you and then he adds also for those who are far off so for the Gentiles as well they also are able to um, be saved by what Christ has done for them I don't think this is uh, uh, Peter advocating for infant baptism, saying that you need to baptize your babies. Um, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So we see in that verse, uh, again, harking back to Genesis 17, that this circumcision isn't just an outward circumcision of the flesh. Paul really hammers on this a few times right there in Romans 4 and then in Galatians. Um, but it's a circumcision of the heart. And it says there in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 that God is the one who will circumcise your heart. He is the one who has to do this work within the individual. Um, there are several examples in the New Testament of household baptisms. These are... Uh, a big place that um, Presbyterians like to go and say, well, this whole household was baptized. And so if the whole household was baptized, obviously infants were baptized as well. And that's where we get this idea of infant baptism. So I want to quickly make my way through Acts and look at a few of these. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, we read of Cornelius' baptism. And just looking at part of that, 
it says that while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So we see there that they were actively listening to the message when the Spirit was poured out upon them. Uh, that's not something that little Isaac is able to do, right? He's just kind of off in his own world, doing his own thing. Um, in Acts 16, 31 through 34, we read about the Philippian jailer. It says in Acts 16, 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So that belief, right? And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were at his house. So they're receiving the word of the Lord. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So this baptism is prefaced by belief, even though it mentions a whole household. Uh, it never mentions infants. That's just kind of assumed by the pedo-baptists, and it does explicitly say that they believed. Uh, a couple chapters 4 in Acts 18, verse 8, it says that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Again, believing uh, precedes the baptism. Jumping over to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16, it says, this is Paul talking about how he didn't baptize people. It says, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. That's a really brief statement, but at the end of his epistle in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, he talks about Stephanus again. He says, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the works and labor. So we see that his household devoted themselves to the ministry, and they were helping in the works and labor. Well, we have one more in... And you're saying with that meaning they weren't babies. Yeah, That's right. babies can't devote themselves to work and labor, right, and to the ministry. So, yeah, that's not something infants would be able to do. Uh, and then one more that is the, the favorite go-to is back in Acts 16. This is Lydia's baptism. Verses 14 and 15 say that a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened, up, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So she's responding to something there, right? And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me, so on and so forth. Um, so that one doesn't really say whether or not the, the household responded. It does make clear that she responded. But we have no reason to assume anything contrary to the other examples of the household baptisms that we've already looked at. Um, it would be uh, an argument that's definitely not in Scripture to insert that she had infants in her household that were also baptized along with her. Um, so yeah, not only is there no verse in Scripture that talks about infant baptism, it really doesn't start showing up until the, the third century. We see this um, coming from Origen and Cyprian and Tertullian, and they were some of the first advocates of uh, infant baptism, but they also came out of the Western Church. We talked about a little bit last week, and we've mentioned in the past they came from the Alexandrian school of thought rather than the, the school of Antioch which means that they were uh, more prone to allegorizing, to taking scripture and looking for a spiritual meaning. Um, some of them were even um, Christian Platonists in their, their understanding. So they followed after uh, Plato's understanding of a uh, dualistic understanding that the, the, the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. We need to look for this spiritual meaning, this deeper, higher meaning. And so that's really when this uh, teaching of infant baptism started taking off. And then aside from all of its lack of biblical support and having developed from a history of uh, an allegorical hermeneutic that looks for these spiritual meanings, uh, I think it really does raise more questions than answers. A couple of questions that I would have, and I guess I do have, I, I don't think it's consistent with the whole understanding concept. 
um, is just how old is too old to baptize an infant. If I were to decide tomorrow, you know what, this makes sense, and I were to take my family and we were to become Presbyterians, would my kids be too old to baptize as infants? Is a, a two-year-old too old, or a three-year-old, or a five-year-old, or an eight-year-old, or 15? How old is too old to undergo infant baptism without having to give a, a profession of faith? Um, what about church discipline? How do we handle church discipline for children who are part of the covenant community, who are living like unbelievers, but we're to treat them like believers? How do we work around that? I think that would be problematic. Um, there are other issues that I'm sure you can think of that we could find with that, but I think the the biggest issue is that it's not given to us in Scripture, that it's derived from a, a hermeneutic that really looks at um, Israel and the church as being one group, one party, under the covenant of works. And it's this theological system that they use to drive their hermeneutic, which then drives their practice, which we don't find in Scripture. Any other thoughts or questions on any of that? Pedo-baptism, pedo-communion, why we don't practice that? What's that? Square Yeah. Hopefully it's clearer than that. <laughs> yeah. Again, we, we don't hold to it. We're just teaching what covenant theology teaches and uh yeah. We could fall under that same trap, but right. yeah, well, it is. And again, for me, it's so closely associated with salvation. Um, the New Testament speaks as believers as those who are baptized. Um, the terms are used almost interchangeably. The, the baptized ones, the believers, right? Those who are Jesus followers. Um, and then to have a, a subcategory of people who are a part of the covenant community who are baptized, but they're not believers, I think that's a, an extra biblical category that just adds confusion. Going back to that do theology episode with that author, uh, one of the things he stresses is how faith, like you were just saying, faith is always linked to baptism in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so it was really during the time of the Reformation as Zwingli was developing in his form of covenant theology, which has become the norm, that he did the unprecedented in separating faith from baptism. Because with Augustine and those guys before, they were trying to come up with explanations and saying, well, it's the parents' faith, or Luther saying it's an unconscious faith. Yeah. And then you get to the point where you separate faith from baptism, totally. And at that point, you now got to new definition for baptism entirely. Yep. All right. Well, if that's not confusing enough, next week we're going to look at some eschatology. So week, two weeks. <laughs> two weeks, that's right. And next week, uh, if you're part of the prayer team or want to be a part of the prayer team, come here and we'll meet. And then yeah, two weeks we'll look at eschatology. Yeah, Joseph. I don't know if we, I don't know if I've heard this before, um, but did we go over that passage with like Peter Cornelius and his family. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, and that's actually a great passage that I use when I'm talking to people, especially those who can, yeah. But not to tell them to baptize their infants, right? Right. <laughs> because, well, yeah, but he says that they're clearly, you know, they believe, like, should we not, like, yep. baptize them now? Good. Yeah, All right, well, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your word, that your word is truth. We pray that you would help us to uh, look for any inconsistencies in our own theology, that we would strive to to follow you and, and your revealed word, that we wouldn't go beyond your word, and uh, that we would be subject to it in, in all things, even when it's difficult or uncomfortable, that we would uh, let it be our guide, that we would let you be our guide, and 
that we would be humble and uh, willing to, to be corrected, willing to learn, um, that we wouldn't be, be guided by anything other than the, the sole infallible word that, uh, that you've blessed us with. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.